Hello and welcome to Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. My name is Peter Schokus and today I'm joined by Max Randall and Roche Johnson to discuss the dancing voice of Afghanistan. We cover this phenomenon's parallels in Persian poetry, what questions it raises about sexuality, and why it is so persistent in certain segments of Afghanistan society. Country where women are hidden behind the burqa, young boys take their place, dancing for men as female substitutes. But Bacha Bazi isn't just a bizarre form of entertainment. The boys are owned, often entrapped in a cycle of sexual slavery, and even murdered. So young boys who'd been abducted by the police commanders and were used as, as servants, they serve tea, but also sex slaves, they're, they're raped by the police commanders. What exactly, how exactly you can solve these very contradictory values between the Taliban and the rest of the people of Afghanistan? We have developed now a way to, to move forward that will make um, Afghans responsible increasingly for their own future and for their own security. We could have got it right, but we put the worst people straight back into power. Rose, when, when you started with the podcast, you pitched the idea to me that we should once discuss the dancing voice of Afghanistan and that we should discuss Bachabazi. So would you do me a favor by explaining what it is? <laughs> yeah, Bachabazi is a practice somewhere between prostitution and trafficking in Afghanistan, wherein young, vulnerable boys, uh, children, but specifically boys, are taken into these kind of dancing troops where they dress up as women and they'll dance at kind of private functions for specifically for men who are of quite who are who are very rich and also have often got their money from less than less than reputable ways um and so there's a lot of dancing they dress up as women they wear makeup they dance to traditional music but there's also a lot of sexual abuse that happens as well on the side um, at the kind of after parties. We thought that this would be a really interesting topic to talk about because it ties together lots of different facets um, that are less spoken about in Afghanistan. Because this culture um, of the bachabazi, which means some people translate it as like boy play, because bacha means like a, a, a child and bazi, some people translate as meaning game, but it also some people think came from the root bachdan, which means to be kind of inflict, like afflicted with love for something and to be like entranced by it. Um, and this goes back to culturally this practice um, in 12th, 13th century Persian and Afghani poetry, wherein you would have the beloved who is the object of the kind of witness who, um, well, we'll, sorry, yeah. we'll go into this more a bit later. <laughs> we can go into the history a bit later because it is, it is like a contemporary problem, I think we can call it, but it does have, you know, calling it a history is going to be wrong, but we're going to at least go into like the historical context of it and where some of the inspiration might might come from. It's, it's not like a direct kind of descendant of this really ancient practice. It's very, it is a modern phenomenon. But the the reason the reason why we're discussing the, the the history is not to justify it as some kind of modern cultural practice because it is just child abuse 
and trafficking. It's not a beautiful art form. It's it's horrific. But the, we would, we're going to discuss the the cultural background to this practice in order to look at why child abuse has taken this specific form in Afghanistan, rather than trying to justify it. Because it has cultural similarities and sort of historical parallels, but it is not necessarily, there's not like a causal link, link between the two, but there is definitely overlap in, in mm. the background. And we're talking about parallels. I think, yeah, it's really, really difficult to establish any sort of real causal link between the practice in Afghanistan today and any sort of pra- similar practice in sort of ancient Iran I think one way you can immediately see the link, though, is in the language. So Shahed Bazi, which is virtually synonymous with Bachi Bazi or, say, Nazar Bazi, all appear in pre-modern Persian poetry, specifically just talks about precisely this or talks about a, a gazing on a beautiful young male and the beloved in this poetry can be a woman, but it is very often as well a young, uh, a young man and, or a young boy, rather. And that at that time, unlike its manifestation in Afghanistan today and all of the horrible consequences of that, a little bit like, say, the relationship between poet or philosopher and his disciple in ancient Greece, it is simply one of admiration and love for your pupil. Um, And I think reading a lot of this poetry in that sense does disconnect us from the, like, sort of the issues and does disconnect us from... Um, this abhorrent practice in Afghanistan. But it is interesting to still think of it as a practice that went by the same name. So just to clarify then, it the same terms exist in old poetry, but the context in which it was used was very different. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it's that there was something very, very positive and very, very beautiful to the relationship between a disciple and his master. And I think just like in any in any context and in any era, say in the modern era, with the relationship between disciple and guru, and we have those two brilliant Netflix documentaries to point to. I forget the name of one of them, but the other one is, is Bikram, and how just unfortunately, when you have got a guru and you are a disciple to someone who you fully surrender yourself to, there can arise certain problems. And we see that in various different countries, various different cultures, and in various different eras. Also, when we're discussing this, something that we have to be really careful about is to not look at it through this very um, orientalist perspective a kind of a, a an example that kind of came up quite recently was during lockdown the first lockdown there was a play that i think was made in america called the boy who danced on air and it was put online and so it got um, a lot more viewers and got a lot of backlash it really highlights the kind of pitfalls that westerners fell into because not only were there no Afghanis actually involved in creating this play or actors in it. Um, what um, was the play about? So it's about Bache Bazi. Um, uh-huh. It's about a, a boy who is a dancer and he has a, I think he falls in love with another boy who's a dancer, but people have criticized it for saying that the relationship between him and his kind of master was overly romanticized rather than being shown as just straight up abuse, which it, which it is. And lots of people got, lots of Afghanis got really upset because this is a practice that um, has has damaged, has hurt so many people. And the Westerners were looking at it through this lens of it's this kind of beautiful native culture that is so like historical and beautiful and 
it, it really reflects how so often narratives about exam, um, Afghanistan are told by foreigners, which is actually what I'm doing right now. <laughs> but yeah, the, the narratives are told by um, by foreigners, not by Afghanis, by foreign journalists in Afghanistan or or whatever. But that we just we need to have more spaces for Afghanis to tell their own personal experiences of this and yeah, and not justify it as as some kind of indigenous art because it's not. I think even just going back, I would add about the historical tradition of Shahid Bazi, which then manifested itself in poetry. It's so easy for us to sort of want to create all of these links between, say, Bachi Bazi and Afghanistan today, or at least I think that was that was that could be a premise and say between the poetry of that time or to sort of reread the poetry in a sort of problematic way that say people who engaged in such acts were also say were also were also gay. And I think that has translated into a lot of homophobia in Iran or Rose, you said that it shouldn't be like romanticized and not seen as or looked at in a necessarily Western way. But I think many Westerners would be very tempted to look at it in like a very homosexual kind of perspective and say, oh, it's a homosexual relationship between a man and his and his servant. But is is that actually the case? Yeah. So that was another thing that people got really upset about um, was the idea that this the Bachelor was some kind of manifestation of queer culture. A lot of um, queer Afghanis came out and condemned this because it really isn't. I mean, firstly, it's just simply it's just not relevant or helpful to discuss really if the people who are doing this abuse are actually gay but also you know historically there's this this horrific pitfall where people conflate homosexuality with child abuse and it's been a way to justify the oppression of of queer people throughout history you know i think in the ussr it was homosexuality was made illegal because it was conflated with pedophilia it has yeah a lot of people have have persecuted queer people out of the fear that they're, they're abusers of children um, and you see it in you know conservative organizations in the US as well like Christian organizations I've I read a study that said that um, pedophiles aren't actually more likely to be gay or straight and they actually have no preference beyond age I just think seeing this as a manifestation of homosexuality is just playing into homophobic tropes that are used to oppress queer people. And so it's not particularly relevant to discuss if they're, they're actually... How then does that square with what Max said earlier about looking onto a beloved? Or was that you? No, that was Max, yeah. yeah. I, could, I could add actually one thing to what Rose had said, which I do um, 100% agree with. And it's just that, yeah, there's this precisely this... If you, took, if you go back to the history um, of, say, even Shahid Bazi at the time of ancient Iran... Mm-hmm. It doesn't correspond to any modern definition we have or understanding in the West of homosexuality or paedophilia. And the problem is so many of our discussions are going from, they are beginning from that premise. And I think that's the problem that then presents itself. And yeah, we're just not looking at them in the most accurate way possible. But is it then the case that the relationship which was portrayed in old literature and old, in old poetry, was that a very like platonic relationship? Very often it was. I think it was... There is this um, there is this sense in a lot of this ancient poetry, which was also a lot of the time very mystical, had a uh, sort of Sufi background and context to it, where love and admiration for one's pupil, one's disciple, which was often a young boy, um, because women weren't as present in society at that time, um, was almost seen as being higher than that love for a woman and as bringing us closer to as bringing us closer to the true beloved, which in a lot of which in a lot of instances was God even if I think it's Dick Davis, would have us believe that Rumi wasn't, uh, wasn't a Muslim. 
Um, so that's the sort of truth that we're playing around with. Yeah, I mean, I could try and give it my best shot at reading a couple of lines by Sa'adi, where he references this particular practice of shahed bazi or nazar bazi. I'm apologizing in advance to all Iranians. So I really don't know how to pronounce all these words. But anyways, I'll give my best shot. Hamidanand keman sabzi khat daram dust. Nacho digar heivan sabzi sahraira. For non-Persian speakers, um, so Sa'adi loves the grass of the khat, as all know, unlike animals that just love the grass. So the khat refers to, which literally means line, but it's referring to sort of the moustache that would be, the sort of very faint moustache would be appearing on the face of a young beloved. And there are other lines where Sa'adi sort of writes, yeah, of engaging in this practice of Shahed Bazi, but he also reflects on the limits of such passions too, critiquing them when they turn into simply a problematic uh, manifestation of a carnal passion and one that I guess if we, we would see today as problematic but people were critical of essentially what I'm trying to say is that people then were also critical of when those relationships became more than something simply beautiful and platonic and as sharing knowledge and I think that is important to to concede because otherwise we're trying to essentially say that all of Iran's ancient poets were pedophiles and I don't think that I don't no, think that any would be a fairly follow. radical position to hold. <laughs> it would be a very <laughs> radical decision. <laughs> the, 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 the erotic kind of imagery used in so much of this um, poetry, it, it's, it, it's a metaphor, or at least some people would argue it's a metaphor. Um, would you agree with that argument? Because I, um, I don't know anything about it, so I don't know what to think. So I, you know, I'm curious <laughs> on you guys' opinion on this. Well, in my limited experience... Um, I think, yeah, I think it's not, I think it toes the line. I think it's not literally referring to necessarily sleeping with young boys, but I think it is playing off the eroticism that they would have experienced in their lives. So maybe with their wives or, or with other people, but I don't, but I don't think they necessarily are writing about having sex with the, the boys who worked in the courts. Um, I think it's a mixture perhaps of their own sexuality and that's kind of fun for the audience to enjoy. I mean, it's very beautiful. If you, I mean, everyone should read some, some Rumi or some Zadi and Sahafas because um, they are phenomenal. But yeah, in there's metaphors, everything's kind of a metaphor really in Persian poetry and quite dense, twisting, turning, sometimes difficult to unpick metaphors. Um, and so it's hard to say really what people are necessarily trying to talk about. But it's interesting talking about the khat, the, the line of the small little baby moustache, because people often use that for women as well. You see in a lot of pictures of women in the harem um, from the earliest pictures that we have of like the harem in Iran, a lot of the women have moustaches and it, it wasn't seen as ugly in the way that a lot of people now... Or exclusively male in that case. Yeah, exactly. So the hat doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be a man, but facial hair is actually really important in this distinction between if it's okay to sexualize a boy or not. Because, and you get this also in, in like ancient Greek and ancient Roman culture, but you also get it in this kind of bachebazi in the classical sense and in the modern practice, um, wherein some it, sexual desire isn't seen as a kind of a binary of homosexuality and heterosexuality. It's kind of like a spectrum and that sexual desire is sexual desire regardless of the gender. And while certain acts like sodomy is like taboo and some people would see same sex um, activity as irreligious 
the idea of homosexuality being a concrete identity is just it's modern and it's not it doesn't really fit um and sexuality is instead defined by active and passive roles and if you are playing a passive role during sex that is seen as humiliating um which is why it's humiliating for women but it's also if you were a grown man humiliating whereas it's not humiliating if you're a boy and the mark of when it becomes unacceptable is when you kind of grow a moustache or a beard like when you properly get facial hair i.e. you hit puberty that's when it starts to become humiliating for you to be seen as being passive and so that's when it starts becoming much more culturally unacceptable in this very specific cultural context not generally throughout the whole country but that kind of separate it's, it's almost like it's not gay and as long as you haven't got a moustache really i could add just before we move on to sort of other things i think just going back to what rose was saying earlier about how it is all a metaphor. I completely agree with that. And Persian poetry, Asian Persian, classical Persian poetry is so, so beautiful for that particular reason. I would just add one more example to all of that, which is uh, the sort of mystical aspect to it, which I've mentioned it before, but I think it's also particularly important in the context of these relationships. When a poet like Rumi, and uh, he's writing, say, in his Azals, which is a particular form of Persian poetry and specifically used um, in in love poetry, um, when he's writing, say, about Shamsi Tabrizi, or writing about these particular sort of, uh, or about Nazarbazi or Shahedbazi, again, as emblematic of an ideal and almost purer form of love that doesn't have to border by any stretch of imagination onto anything more than simply being platonic and an admiration for the beauty of a young boy that is emulating, uh, the, uh, that is emulating God. It's just it plays as just a, a particularly important role in sort of Sufi sort of mystical practice of trying to, in one sense, get closer to the ultimate beloved that is God. And in another sense, trying to almost, and this is an idea that I'm particularly interested in, uh, is essentially trying to reach a stage of an ego death. Um, I don't, I've got the, the, the Persian word in front of me, but I'm not quite sure if this would be how you would pronounce it. But I think it's fana in uh, Sufi practice, this sense of killing one's ego and this actually reminds me of a passage. What, what does in, killing one's ego involve? This, this is a really good question. Um, I think it's almost, you could almost look at it linguistically when you see in, say, Sufi literature or actually a lot of Buddhist literature that I am, say, I am God. And I think it is that sense in which there is no longer any boundary, dualistic boundary between, say, you and the outside world. Um, that is something that I've read a little bit about in Buddhist philosophy, but also now uh, in sort of Sufi mystical literature. Vegetables in this case, are they then the, the target of love which would achieve that ego death then? Well, I think it's what I well, what I'm trying I think what I'm trying to say is that this poetry where they're expressing their love for the beloved um is almost seen as it's a transitional phase. It's bringing them that step closer. Rumi, by writing about Shamsi Tabadizi, who's, well, this is an, an example of a transgenerational same-sex relationship. But even, you can use it as an example, or I could say when Saadi is writing specifically about Nazarbazi and Shahedbazi, there is a sense in which they're trying to get cl as close as possible to God's true love. And to do that, they're going to write poetry about sort of about the beloved, who often tends to be male. It's that sort of transitional phase that trying to use language to take you to something that is ineffable, which will always essentially fail, but it's bringing you closer than if you were to not be writing that poetry in some sense. At least that's how I've, how I've read it. It's just sort of interesting to stop on, I think. I, mean, I want to talk about women if if we can because it is sort of the the elephant in in the room in this case that you know we focus on the boys in this case because the women are not 
present in this context. What, is, is there his, or a historical reason that women didn't play as big a role in the expression of love as, as, as boys did? I mean, it's not, it's not really my area. I don't really know that. I don't know much about it, but I think women were historically more hidden away. And I think there were definitely like female dancers and singers, but I think um, at moments when perhaps the culture got more conservative, they went into the background a bit more and were less visible. And I think at the moment, I think that is the case in Afghanistan where women are still, you know, in the house and just to a larger extent they're very hidden um and so that's kind of the reason why these kind of gang leaders these bosses that own all these boys maybe that's the reason why they choose boys because they wouldn't be able to publicly display their women for the the same effect because using these having these boys is a form of demonstrating your wealth but also your kind of high status as you're kind of linking yourself to this historical high culture performance art of having boys dancing because it is a very like public spectacle of having these boys dressed very elaborately dancing and singing Um, and so it is a way to demonstrate your wealth and so they need to be able to be seen therefore they have to be boys because you couldn't do it with a girl. That's a very good transition into sort of the modern context of it because it happens now in Afghanistan and as anyone who's read the news knows Afghanistan is not in a very good state at the moment and one reason the boys have to do it is because women are not allowed to be seen in public in in such a way wearing these clothes and dancing like this but another reason is the simple and very sad fact that the boys especially in Pashtun tribal areas in southern Afghanistan they are incredibly poor after four decades of war, uh, which means that by selling themselves into this situation, they do become the breadwinners of the family, which, you know, is an incredibly sad state of being, but that's where we are. There's a brilliant documentary that anyone who's listened to this, if they're interested in learning more, there's a brilliant documentary um, in, I think it's done by the BBC called The Dancing Boys of Afghanistan, in that they follow a particular kind of warlord type character. I'm not really sure his background is. Um, and some of the boys that he has has in his group um, and you see him kind of pick up a new boy and he literally just he sees a like a very young boy out on the street who is um, obviously very poor and kind of takes him in and starts training him because it's almost like there's like a little dance school where they have different kind of mentors of different boys who are kind of further up in the chain who teach him how to do this stuff and the the boy doesn't look very pleased with any of it it's clearly not his where he wanted to go but you also see this kind of harrowing moment where one of the older boys who is quite successful he's getting to the age where you know he's properly hitting puberty and he's getting too old to be a dancer because he's now turning into a man and so he he says how he wants to set up his own dancing group and you can kind of see how the cycle of trauma kind of repeats that people who, in the cycle of abuse, people who are abused go into helping perpetuate this abuse because it's the only skill set that they've got. And yeah, they're, they're in this social situation now and it's kind of hard to come back from that, really. Yeah, I don't think on what you, just to add to what you said, Rose, about how boys who had been abused in this fashion then perpetuate um, this particular um, horrible practice it almost reminds me of how and this wasn't always problematic in amongst sort of Sufis in the 
uh, classical period. I remember reading about how uh, these relationships between masters and their disciples would repeat over generations. And as we now know, that would have been, that could have been for the better, but that could also have been for the worse. And there is definitely something to be said about how these sort of these imbalanced relationships premised on power can just lead to really problematic outcomes. Also, I think just taking us back a little bit to what also you were saying, Piotr, about uh, the boys acting out of a financial necessity, but also on what we were saying about women's role in society. I think I came across, it was of a particular Afghani soldier who said that with regards to this, uh, so this is under the Taliban, this is like with regards to taking, regards to this practice of Bachibazi, he says, you cannot take wives everywhere with you. You You cannot take a wife with you to a party, for instance, but a boy you can take anywhere, which I think is just such a harrowing and almost quite revealing statement. But it fits very well with what Rose said earlier in that, you know, the boys can be seen in public while the wives or the daughters cannot be. But also another thing which is quite, you know, sheds some light on the situation is the fact that 48% of the boys who who are part of this are illiterate, according to a study by the Afghani Human Rights Commission. And what is possibly the most surprising is that 86% of the of the pimps, I guess you can almost call them, claim that their boys are happy, but 81% of the boys surveyed claim they are very unhappy and are forced into the situation. And it is, you know, very much about power relations. And something we forgot to mention, which is also very important, is that these pimps tend to have very close relationships with the security services. And it's also something you see in that BBC documentary, is that one of them brags about the fact that he can have 100 policemen come to where he is within a few minutes because of his connections and it basically shows that it's very very difficult for the boys to do anything to solve their situation because the state quite literally is against them gaining their freedom or gaining the the quality of life which they want to get once they've fallen into this situation i think just to add to that actually i'm not wrong i I think i'm not wrong in saying that for a lot of these i guess we'll we'll go with pimp i mean (laughs) It seems to have a specific connotation that doesn't quite fit this, but also I think it's the most appropriate word to use. Their status in society is elevated by possessing or by owning as many boys as possible in a way that is, I think, particularly unique to this situation in that it allows them to achieve a certain societal clout, if I can put it, put it as such. And I think that is clearly an issue that I'm not quite sure how, I mean, if grassroots organizations were even allowed to operate or if there was even any true opposition to this. I don't even know how you'd begin to say, tackle that particular facet, which actually, Piotr, it could be quite interesting to maybe talk about, about how war and uh, Western intervention has actually helped perpetuate this particular problem, has helped worsen this particular problem of Bakhtibazi. Yeah, no, that that's a good point, because, you know, Afghanistan has been at war since the late 70s when the Soviet Union invaded, and then after that, the <laughs> Taliban came to power in 1996, and you know, Bashtabazi is illegal now in 2020, almost 2021, but it was also illegal when the Taliban came to power. But the problem was that when the Taliban took over the government, they completely neglected the social services and basic government functions, which led to total societal collapse within within Afghanistan, which has then created a whole host of problems. For example, the economics problems I, I mentioned earlier. And much of the Afghanis economy is based on the informal sector. And then when the Americans came in with their very noble intentions of getting rid of the, rid of the Taliban and improving the situation of women in 
in Afghanistan. They did that often by replacing the Taliban with tribal leaders, more than almost any other policy they've had in Afghanistan. It probably shows their lack of prior research before they decided to go to war. Because a consistent problem was that the people who they would put in power, the people they would make police commissioners, for example, these would be people from tribal background who would participate in Bachabalsi. And these then would become politically influential people. And through those policies, the Americans have basically institutionalized to a certain extent Bachabalsi. And even though they, you know, obviously, I don't think any American would go that it's a good policy. They have prioritized their major strategic aims in, in Afghanistan over local humanitarian goals. And that has caused extreme problems with with the acceptance many local Afghanis have of the American occupation because they have put these people to do something which is you know, morally repugnant. They've put those people into power and protect them only because they are pro-American. There was also this case where a private military company in order to curry favor with their local counterparts, hired a teenage boy to dance at a party. And when this was leaked by some activists in Afghanistan, the company didn't really do much about it. The only thing they did was call it a questionable management oversight, which I think is the most extreme euphemism I've ever heard for participating in something which shouldn't be encouraged in any way, shape. And, you know, obviously this is not a podcast for American bashing, but I do think there has been like a total failure in, in that case of understanding how local or how strategic objectives can be helped by you know doing a good job locally as well. Yeah, it, dem- it demonstrates how incompetence is just complicity. How does corruption exacerbate it as well? You know, it's something we touched on earlier as well, that, you know, these people tend to be fairly well connected to the security services. And it is the case that in countries without strong institutions the security services are the most powerful arm of the government because if you have the guns people will do what you say so when if people can be bribed to look away or participate in the activities then of course they're not going to do anything about it and due to the total lack of functioning government in Afghanistan and the fact that the Taliban is now resurging it is there is very little traditional room to deal with the problem because any way you'd solve with it in the West through either lawsuits or that possibility simply doesn't exist in in Afghanistan, sadly. I think for me, and it goes back to your statement, Rose, which I think is a really, really, really good way of looking at the situation, which is how, yeah, incompetence uh, does translate into complicity in this particular instance. But then there is the bigger question raised of, which we most certainly cannot try and answer here, which is how would one or how would an organization or perhaps a country with noble intentions want to go about fixing this situation, go about wanting to eradicate, let's say just specifically focus on the practice of Bachibazi, how would one even begin to undertake that within the plethora of problems that have been exacerbated, worsened, and then made more problematic? I think it's just, it's such a, it's just such a difficult question. And I think this I mean, sort of underpinning it all is, again, as we mentioned before, how these boys are acting out of a financial necessity, how they are the breadwinners in their families. And if there are no other no other way out for the people, and as we've already talked about as well, women are forced to stay at home and unable to work and, and have not been emancipated in that sense. I, It's very difficult to feel at all hopeful in this particular situation. Max, but, uh, I remember you said before that, um, wasn't there, what was the case in, Af- in Uzbekistan? Oh my God. 
well, if I'm here about to talk about how Uzbekistan's policies towards emancipating women, because this practice of Bachibazi, which to some extent had roots in the Persian Empire, having extended as far, was to, to a large extent eradicated by emancipating women, which I thought was interesting. I mean, it definitely at least contributed to, I don't know, um, the, the degree of causality, but emancipating women definitely had a positive impact on eradicating that practice and a very staunch opposition to it by the government, which, as we've already established, is it a possibility in modern day Afghanistan? The problem, I think, in the Uzbekistan case, and this goes back to what you were saying, Rose, and what I touched upon when we were talking about homosocial relationships uh, in ancient Greece, or be it in Rome, or be it in Persia, is how the Soviet Union, and specifically in this case, Uzbekistan, have always been very quick to just see a practice or such transgenerational relationships as, as homosexual and then very quickly to d- designate them as. Uh, homo- and to be homophobic in that way, designate anybody who would have engaged in such acts as paedophilic, which is not entirely wrong, but it, again, it's allowed, unfortunately, uh, homophobia to perpetuate in Eastern Europe and in Central Asia and in these countries in a way that is very, very unfortunate, even if they have helped eradicate this, pro- this, this practice of bachibazi by emancipating their women to a, to a greater extent than Afghanistan. I would add, I mean, it'd be difficult to do worse, to do a worse job than Afghanistan at the moment despite all the problems that are there but as in (laughs) another problem is that you know if you try to solve it either the boys or the pimps or both you know they get isolated socially because of what they do because despite how prevalent it can sometimes seem in Afghanistan it's not something which the whole country thinks is acceptable it's seen as negative it's seen as a negative thing to participate in this the problem is, as we mentioned earlier, is that when a person or when a boy has taken part in it, there's often a lot of shame involved and they don't want to re-enter society and have it be known that they have, have been a, a Bachabazi, which creates a problematic situation where once, you know, by, by trying to do something about it, you give it more attention. But by giving it more attention, the, the result is that these people are socially isolated, which mm. forces them to stay within their very problematic no social and economic context. There is basically no solution to it other than creating the foundations of a good society within within Afghanistan. And that's something I think Westerners should not try to do at the moment after you know, the fairly poor track record Western countries have in you know Iraq, in Libya, in Afghanistan, and wherever else we have been active in the last two that's or three decades. Funny. Are there any like, grassroots organizations that are helping at the moment what what's currently being done yeah you know th- there is a bit but as as i mentioned earlier the fact that the legal and political situation in afghanistan is not conducive to free speech or challenging the powers that be so there is more activism in afghanistan which tends to focus on socioeconomic problems and i do think that's a good thing because if you solve the socioeconomic problems you also remove the very first ground where these boys can be found for due to a lack of economic possibilities. And these activists tend to transcend ethnic and religious lines in order to you know, develop a better future, which I think is encouraging. But obviously, there's a huge amount of institu- institutional inertia to deal with before any changes can be made. And the activists which are involved in trying to uncover batch policy, they do what might be one of the most dangerous jobs in the world because all of them get their threats for their work. And there was a case relatively recently where two activists had found videos of this happening on, in a Facebook group and had published them so that more people could see them. They were then taken into protective custody by the police, which sounds good until in that protective custody, they were forced to 
make a video where they were so recanting their their statements and they were saying that the videos they had were doctored. And it's obviously that they did this under duress and under the threat either of torture or severe physical abuse. And it just shows how deep the problem is. And I do, I do think that the best chance is not necessarily to treat or to try to solve Bachabazi on its own because it cannot be taken out of its socioeconomic context. I, I think also it actually it reminds me of, um, and there was this interesting article that talked about this lady reporting in Chechnya and the difficulties that she faced. And she was actually, I can't remember her name, but she was unfortunately shot doing this particular work. But I think the one of the sort of horrible things that she uncovered when reporting on both wars and Russia's involvement in Chechnya, and the reason why it's, I think it's relevant here, is just how official government forces, and you've mentioned the police here, we've talked about influential tribal leaders and to some extent other high-ranking officials, how they keep perpetuating this particular problem. We mentioned that the Bachars out of the Bachars have to unfortunately act out of some sort of financial necessity, but from the moment that the government institutions are corrupt to that extent there's just no real possibility for change until those government institutions i guess are no longer as corrupt and i guess that's the perennial question of how do you go about ameliorating such institutions or changing them deposing them in a successful way in a way that empowers the people in those countries and it's it's so difficult to think about at least i guess to some extent even by talking about this uh, particular issue which i had known very very little about had almost never even heard of before rose had mentioned it to me by just raising awareness of problems you can in some way shape you can in some way shape a dialogue and a discussion that can sometimes lead to action so i guess that could be something to be somewhat hopeful about but again it's a it's a a glimmer it's a very it's a a faint glimmer of hope in what is um one of those sort of most barbaric and horrific things uh horrific situations i've ever had to read about you know, I, I can finish the episode by saying probably the most horrific thing I found throughout all my research on, on this, and that is the role the Bachabazis have in the Taliban. Because as as we mentioned earlier, the Taliban had outlawed Bachabazi, but after the American invasion, I think the rules went out of the window for them. What they do is that they recruit these these boys who are desperate for money. The Taliban then uses these boys, in effect, as Trojan horses to infiltrate police stations, because as we've mentioned, how this phenomenon is very prevalent among the security services. And what the deal basically is, is that these boys then have to sleep with these policemen. And at night, when everybody's sleeping, the boys have to open the door, let the Taliban in, and the Taliban will then kill these policemen and apparently hundreds of soldiers and policemen have have died this way the absolute insanity of this whole situation is that these boys are often abused and that makes them an easy recruitment target for the taliban and that you know allows this whole process to happen on the other hand the police has gone completely morally bankrupt and threatens boys who are not affiliated with the taliban policemen will say that they are affiliated with the taliban and say if if you run away from us We'll tell everyone you're a Taliban affiliate and then we'll kill you. And because of that, it basically forces the boys who are not Taliban affiliated to stay with the policemen. Yeah, that's kind of one of the worst things I've heard in a really long time. Yes. Completely hopeless. There was a police, sorry, an activist in in Afghanistan who said that the Taliban have figured out the biggest weakness of the police forces is Bachabazi. If the situation for these boys could be any worse, I do not, I cannot imagine how that would be yeah that particular story is sort of so horrifying i think by virtue of 
now being used as almost weapons of war in some sense, as, as opposed to just as if their lives hadn't been bad enough by being engaged in this self-perpetuating vicious cycle of what is essentially prostitution. Now they're being used as a way of Talibanic exercising their authority, improving their, their position, generally speaking. It's, it's, it's horrific. Thank you for listening to this episode of Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. Join us next time when we examine the reasons behind Lebanon's ongoing political and economic crisis. Almanac is a student-run initiative at the Middle East Centre in the University of Oxford. The opinions expressed in the podcast do not in any way represent the official opinions of the University or of the Middle East Centre. It is edited and hosted by myself, Piotr Stokers, with the invaluable ADO. Lily Sullivan. Felix Walker. Michael Mimari. Hazar Madah. Max Randall. Frederica Brockhoven. Iman Farah. Rose Johnson. 